Hey, welcome to Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady here, and I'm joined once again by Pastor Michael Payne. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good to be with you again. Hey, so today what I want to talk about is the perspicuity of Scripture. And the reason I want to talk about it is because this is what I wrote my master's dissertation on. And for several months now, like people have been asking me, hey, so when are you going to tell us more about your dissertation, what you learned, what it's about? And I'm always kind of putting it off because it just seems like such a big topic and something I spent like, you know, a year researching and looking into. I love the topic, but it does kind of feel like uh, eating an elephant and not knowing where to where to begin. So, Mike, that's why I've asked you to be here is so that you can kind of ask the questions that people might ask that would kind of kind of cue me to be able to explain the topic as I understand it. Yeah, no, I I really I really love this topic. It's a great topic to get into. And but my very first question would be, and I'm sure many of your listeners are uh, asking this question right now, and that is, what does the word perspicuity actually mean? <laughs> Where it means clarity. And oftentimes this is actually used interchangeably. So uh, people who don't want to sound maybe as um, uh, pretentious would use just the word clarity of scripture. Yeah. And why, you know, what, why does this actually matter? Like how, what was the, you know, how did you come to study? Why was this kind of the topic for your dissertation? Yeah, I came to study it for a personal reason, but the more I looked into it, I, I realized that this is something that affects everything we do um, as Christians. There's so many um, assumptions made about the Bible that that relate to this topic of perspicuity um, or the clarity of Scripture. Well, I think the reason we use the word perspicuity rather than clarity is just because Clear, what does it mean that the Bible is clear? Well, perspicuous, it's this, uh, you know, we use similar words like conspicuous or inconspicuous. Well, perspicuous means that the Bible is clear, meaning it's opaque. You can look at it and you can see and understand what it means. I'll give you an example. Is that um, I used to work in a refugee camp in Hungary. And in this refugee camp, uh, we would go in and the Bible Society from Colorado Springs would send us Bibles in the languages of these people because we couldn't speak their languages. They spoke languages like Farsi, Dari, Urdu, Asian languages. And we couldn't speak to people in their languages and we didn't have a common language, but we had this underlying fundamental assumption and belief that if they could just read the Bible for themselves, then the Bible would give them everything that they needed to to know, to believe in Jesus, and that that was really all they needed, that they could read it, they could understand it, and they could respond appropriately just by reading it. And so we would hand out Bibles, and we did see that happen. We saw people who read the Bible, and they responded by wanting to be baptized, and they wanted more Bible study and things like that. But I mean, even the way that we do church, right, which is we encourage people this year, for example, we encourage our church to read through the entire Bible at home, right? Not just in church where we're explaining to them what it means. We're telling them, go home, read the Bible for yourself every single day. We're presuming that they're going to be able to understand it and not misunderstand at least the main points. And so, this is really something that uh, gets into, you know, should people do personal devotions? Should people read the Bible for themselves? Can they? You know, who's qualified to uh, read the Bible and explain it to others? This all comes down to this topic of whether Scripture is clear and or, or if it's not. And it, and it makes a huge difference. Uh, furthermore, it's a major theme of the Reformation. Um, and, and that's actually what I wrote my dissertation on was, 
was the perspicuity of Scripture, the concept that Scripture is clear and knowable and understandable to the common person, is that view um, unique to the Reformation? Uh, did it come about as a result of things that were going on in the world? You know, with um, with what's is like a pre-enlightenment period, but it's also a time of scholasticism in Europe and things like that. Was it born out of that only, or actually was this a view that can be seen in the early days of the Christian Church? Can it be seen in the Church Fathers, or as we call it, the Patristic period, which is the period basically from after the Apostles, the next generation after the Apostles, going up until about uh, 450 AD. And you know, that's what we consider the Patristic period, the Church Fathers, um, kind of concluding with one of the greatest Church Fathers, who is Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce it. And, um, and so that was my big question um, that I sought to answer in my dissertation. And my conclusion, of course, was that it was not novel to the Reformation. It is actually something which can be found, and and not just a little bit, it's found very, very clearly taught in the um, in the Church Fathers, particularly in Augustine, but not just in Augustine. It's found in Ignatius, it's found in Clement of Rome, it's found in others as well. But let me, let me just give you a definition. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Uh, it says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set out in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. But it goes on to say this, all things in Scripture are not alike plain, meaning that not everything is equally clear, nor are all things alike clear unto all people. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but also the unlearned in due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So that means that people who don't have, let's say, prohibitive disabilities, people who have the ability to read and have some sense of reading comprehension, uh, a person functioning with normal capabilities, whether they're a farmer, whether they're um, you know, a scholar, they should be able to comprehend at least the core aspects that it mentions here. Yeah, I mean, it, it would... It would seem that it's self-evident that the Bible is understandable by your your lay person, you know, in the church. That if I give them, you know, an ESV or I give them a New King James or if I give them an NIV or a translation, that they they can come to conclusions that it is that is clear to them. And maybe that's something we even take for granted nowadays. But during the course of your study, you know, you've you've come up with. That there's there's people that actually have issue with this. You know, there's some. Uh, it's not always. Uh, you know, they, there's arguments actually against the clarity or the perspicuity of scripture. Yeah, there are about five key arguments, and they're not bad arguments to be honest. They're actually uh, some are pretty good arguments, and um, that brings me to another point that you brought up a second ago, which is how did I start to study this topic? As I said, it was a personal thing, um, and the personal thing was that a friend of mine um, converted from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism, and this was his issue, actually, that he claimed that uh, Protestantism is like like a boat without a rudder, in a sense that um, it's just willy-nilly a free-for-all as far as biblical interpretation, whereas the Roman Catholic Church 
which, by the way, does not believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, um, they at least have one interpretation for everything. Now, first of all, that's not true, that the Catholic Church only has one interpretation for everything. Uh, but they do have a governing body called the magisterium, and the magisterium, is their job is to determine Catholic doctrine. And so, essentially what this guy even said at one point was that, well, even if they're wrong, at least they're all on the same page. So again, not only are they not on the same page, but that's also, in my opinion, very faulty logic to say, well, at least they're unified, even if they're wrong. I, I would rather not have unity at the sake of being right. But let's, um, let's talk about some of the, the reasons or objections that people give to the perspicuity of Scripture. Okay, number one is this. The claim that the Scriptures um, are a transcendent mystery that human words are incapable of describing. Basically, that our human minds are too small to understand God and that our human language is too limited to be able to actually um, communicate things about God. Because okay, so that's the first argument. Um, my objection to that, and I would say the objection of, of anybody who believes in the perspicuity of Scripture, would be to say, okay, perhaps we cannot fully comprehend God, and I do believe God's transcendent. Uh, I, I also agree that our language is limited. In fact, I would say that the Bible itself talks about that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand some things about God. And that's, that's again, uh, what the point is of perspicuity. Not everything's equally clear, but there are some things which are abundantly clear, and we can comprehend those things. Okay, number two is this. The claim that if the Scriptures are perspicuous— there would be no need for the Holy Spirit to enable the reader to understand its meaning and message. So, the idea that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to understand, this would be coming from like 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, it wouldn't be necessary if we could just read the scriptures and comprehend them. Um, it's a fair argument, but again, I think it's, it's not a, a perfect argument. And the reason is because of something we'll talk about a little bit later, I hope, which is how Martin Luther addressed this, and that was that he understood Scripture to have to be perspicuous in two different ways by two different means. That would be called what's called the internal aspect of the Scriptures being clear and the external aspect. So we'll we'll get to that in a second. But none of the reformers, and also neither the church fathers, would have denied that we need the Holy Spirit's help in order to understand the Scriptures. So. We still need the Holy Spirit, even though the scriptures are clear. Okay, third, the claim that belief in the clarity of scripture disregards and undermines the God-given role of the church as the interpreter of scripture. So basically, this, that what they say is that this would lead to people saying, well, who needs the church anymore to help you understand the Bible? Because you can just go and read it for yourself. And to their point, this is something that has been done throughout history and has honestly been done to the detriment. But as we'll see, that this was not the intention of anybody his, throughout history, neither the church fathers nor the reformers who argued for the clarity of scripture. They weren't trying to get rid of the church. People warned them, if you do this, it will lead to people abandoning the church. And they were right. But, um, but again, it's still, we don't do theology based on what we're afraid it might lead to right? Like even with grace, right? We didn't say, some people say, well, if you preach grace, you know, people will cast off all um, inhibitions. 
and yet we should preach grace because it's the truth, right? Just because somebody might use it in a bad way doesn't mean that, um, that we shouldn't teach the truth. Okay, so the fourth one is the claim that belief in perspicuity of Scripture results in competing and sometimes contradictory interpretations. This is the biggest argument, particularly right now, from, from a lot of people who, um, who would leave Protestantism and go to either Eastern Orthodoxy or to Roman Catholicism, is that they say, this is the problem, and this is my friend's issue, uh, this is the problem with Protestantism. It leads to just competing and, and sometimes um, contradictory interpretations. If Scripture is, in fact, clear, then wouldn't it be that everybody comes to the same conclusion about it? That's, that's the argument. And number five, the claim that the Bible itself asserts that it is obscure, that it's not clear, right? So, the Bible says that it is not clear. Therefore, belief in the clarity of Scripture is a self-defeating argument which contradicts the Bible's own claims about its nature. So, I, w- I would argue that what the Bible's saying is that that same point from earlier, that it can't, God is transcendent and his ways cannot just be cleanly summarized in human language nor comprehended by the human mind. We, we often say this, actually. We say um, in our church, and I, I've heard it from others, that if God were so small that I could fully comprehend him, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. So, this is not something that we deny. Um, and we also would say, yeah, the scriptures say that they're not able to tell us everything. We still see through a glass dimly. And yet, we do see some things in the glass. And so... Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, those the, the, those arguments, I mean, they set off a lot of uh, thoughts in my head, you know, especially that deep theological term you used, willy-nilly. That <laughs> one is, uh, we'll have to work on work on that one too. But uh, um, yeah, no, and I, I think that's something maybe to think about in, in a future podcast, just the idea... Uh, of God's transcendence, but but God's eminence, and that that's you know it's a, uh, a false dichotomy in many ways, and uh, that's just something very interesting to think about because you know that bridge is Jesus between you know transcendence and eminence, and so much of what is what Jesus shows us in the New Testament bridges that gap between God's transcendence and His His eminence. But let's let's uh, dial down to you know dig down a little bit deeper into the the idea of Luther and what he talked about because this seems interesting and I'm not sure I understand it. The internal and the external perspicuity of Scripture. Yeah, it's actually pretty simple when you when you uh, just explain it, and that's this. And and it wasn't just Luther who taught this. I mean, it was also Augustine and the Church Fathers. What they would say is this, that um, the external clarity of Scripture simply means this, that if you can speak English and you read the text in English, you can understand what it says. And maybe you can understand even what it means or what it purports to mean. But in order for you to internalize that, in order for you to believe it, in order for it to have its effect on you, you need to have the Holy Spirit. And so that's the internal clarity. And so for you to have internal clarity and to not just read the text and understand what the words on the page mean, but to have them be internalized, to have them affect you, to have them be, uh, yeah, to, to do that work as the living word of God, you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, the enlightening of the Holy Spirit, helping you to do that. And, um, and that's, this is also something we see in the Bible itself, where it, we see this idea 
that the Jewish people, for example, at the book, end of the book of Acts, this is seeing you see, hearing you hear, and yet you do not comprehend. And so it's the same idea that there's a veil that covers their eyes. And Paul says, like in 2 Corinthians 3, in Christ, the veil is removed. And so there has to be this internal work of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's in no way neglecting the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing understanding, but it is saying that like, if you can read a book and understand it, then you can also read the words in the page in the Bible and at least understand what they're saying, even if you don't believe them. Even if they don't transform you, that's the external part. You can still read and understand them. But in order for you to, to be transformed by them, you need the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe you can just comment on this. Uh, you know, it just makes me think I've been doing this deep dive into to missionaries, you know, over the past few weeks. And, you know, one of the biggest hurdles that the missionaries, uh, you know, came across initially when they went out was the language barrier and and translating scripture into the language of 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 the native people that they were speaking to and it seems to me just from our discussion here that those two things that external internal things come came together in that to bring i mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people groups and languages that were translated and they all came to the same saving knowledge of 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 jesus you know, by the external reading of their own language and understanding, and by the power of the Holy Spirit bringing them to faith. What do you? What do you? Does, does that seem like an example that, you know, where these two seem to come together? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason why is because um, so we want to help people understand the external, but we understand that without the work of the Holy Spirit, we can't open people's eyes to understand not just um, the external meaning, but the the true ultimate meaning for them, right? So it's not just that it's true or it's not just that this is what it says, but it's actually true for you so it can have its effect in your life. You know, you could compare that with, for example, in Islam, they, um, they're really, really into the Arabic text of the Quran. And they will say, there's no such thing as a translation of the Quran. There are uh, interpretations of the Quran that are in different languages. But if you really want to read the word of God, you have to read it in Arabic. Now, as Christians, there's some people who would say, well, it's important that we get back to the original text so that we're not just dealing with secondhand, we're meaning like translations, so we can see what was there in the original text. And yet, we would say that the external meaning is, is not always the same. I mean, it's, it's not tied to the original language in the same way that, like, for example, Muslims believe it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's an interesting thought because when I lived in Syria, I was told that by numerous Muslims that you can't, under- you can't understand, truly understand the Quran. Only the imams can really, you know, and, and they weren't even, you know, encouraged to, to read it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, they, they had to read it in context with the imam and all. And it was, yeah, very, very interesting. And th- that brings us to a different, you know, uh, I think this is probably one of the most important points, probably one of the most, you know, I say, I guess you would say where, where the rubber hits the road kind of questions. And that, you know, people say, well, why is it that different people can read the same Bible, you know, here in the U.S. or, you know, out in East or in, in the South and South America? And they, they can come to completely, you know, different conclusions about what the Bible says, you know, and then, and, you know, if it's clear, as you've said, then how come not everybody can agree on what it actually means? Yeah. And that answer gets back to, um, 
the thing I met, I read earlier from the Westminster Confession is that not everything is equally clear. But here's the interesting part, is that I would say that it is actually by God's design that not all things are, are equally clear. So those things which are necessary for the glory of God, for the salvation of human beings, for understanding the mission of God, those things are clear. And yet, uh, not everything in the Bible is clear. And, and why is that? Well, Augustine actually answers that question himself. He says, if it was all clear, there would be uh, no reason for us to keep digging and reading and seeking the Lord about the meaning. And so, he says, it is God's masterful work as a master writer and inspirer that he's made some parts of Scripture more opaque and some parts of Scripture more obscure than others so that we can understand the key things, but also be seeking all the time. It keeps us in his word, which has power by the Holy Spirit to transform us. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I actually tend to really agree with Augustine or Augustine there on that point that I think that uh, it's God's masterful plan that not all things are equally clear. But this is where we get to the creeds, right? Is that the, the whole point of the creeds is that people have said in history, these are the things which about which there's no room for disagreement, right? And these are the things which scripture clearly teaches. And there was what we call ecumenical consensus, which nowadays ecumenical is uh, thought of a, as a word that ha is kind of suspect because of some of the ways it's been used in recent decades. But in those times, ecumenical just meant that the churches, church leaders all got together and they were in agreement. Yes, this is what the scriptures clearly teach. Yeah. And uh, um, would you say that, and I think we've had this discussion before at some point, but that culture plays a big part in how people view scripture. Like an African would read the Bible and maybe, you know, view it a different way, maybe an Asian Asian culture or, you know, a South American Indian culture or whatever it might be. Do you think that plays a part in how people view scripture? Um, hugely. And it, it gets to um, related issues that um, would be great to get into. I don't know if we'll have uh, the time or scope for that today, but it gets into this idea of how we do theology or what's called theological method. And there's generally recognized to be four, maybe five uh, inputs that go into doing theology. And those are scripture, which, which should be number one, in my opinion, in a theological method. Then also tradition, which is important as well in this, meaning church traditions, but also interpretive tradition. Um, then we get into culture, experience, community. All of those things play into the way that we, when we read scripture, how we interact with it and the things that we might emphasize as we read it. But I would also emphasize this, that this is why even those in the past who, who talked about arguing for the clarity of Scripture, perspicuity, none of them ever would have said that you should read the Bible in isolation. Um, they would have said, read it in community, and that community should be the community of believers, also known as the church. Now, as you mentioned, people from different cultures, um, we need the church in order to read the Bible um, not just the local church, but we need also the global church. Yeah, no, and uh, that just goes along with, you know, kind of how we do church here, you know, the understanding that the, the, the Bible's preached on Sunday morning, but then we encourage people through community groups to 
how does that apply in my life? You know, how, how's God working out the fruits of the Spirit or whatever topic it was? How does that look in my life? How's it a practical way for me to work out that Scripture, an idea that, that Scripture, you know, it's active and living. It's, it's, it's clear, but it, it, it affects people in, in different ways. So a final question, final question before, before we go, and, and, and that is what, what is at stake in the discussion of, of the, you know, why, why is this topic vital and important, especially today? Yeah, it's, uh, it is very important, and it's very important in every age. But you know what's really interesting in my study, um, looking at the church fathers and how they all argued for the clarity of Scripture, but also looking at the reformers and how they argued for the same thing. What's so interesting is that they argued for it for different reasons. And, um, and those different reasons were because of their, their setting in which they were found. And I can't help but think that in our setting in which we're found, there's also a way that this applies and speaks to it. And, and you could say, was, what's at stake? Okay, so for Augustine and the Church Fathers, what was at stake was that they were dealing with a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism essentially claimed that there's secret knowledge out there, which only a, a select number of people have access to. And in contradiction to that, Augustine and the Church Fathers said, no, Scripture is clear, and not only is it clear, but it is sufficient. So you don't need you know, some guy out there to tell you something, and if some guy out there does tell you something, you should check it against your Bible. Because remember, this is what they did in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, in Berea. They listened to what Paul said, they checked it against the scriptures, and they were commended for doing that as being more noble than the, the people of Thessalonica because they went and verified it according to the scriptures. And so, this is what Augustine and the church fathers were saying. We have the scriptures. They are clear. You don't need somebody else. You can go check them for yourself. And they are also sufficient. So the sufficiency of Scripture is related to this concept of the clarity of Scripture. But um, the, why did the Reformers argue for it? Well, they argued for it because um, at the time, the Roman Catholic Church had said, no, 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 we are the only ones who get to interpret Scripture. And they were acting in a way that was kind of tyrannical and also many times hypocritical, where they would give uh, themselves a pass, they would create loopholes for themselves, and they would interpret the Scriptures in a way that either benefited them, or let's say they had traditions which weren't found in the scriptures, they would just keep going with them because they elevated their own traditions to the level of scripture. So reformers came along and said, no, 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 we have the scriptures. They are clear and they need to be put in the hands of the people and the people need to read them and they need to verify. In a way, it's a way of keeping the church in check. In other words, the church doesn't own the scriptures. The scriptures also the, the church is judged by the scriptures, not the other way around. And that's an important safeguard for anybody who has any kind of power, whether it's a local church pastor, whether it's a big denomination, whether it's, you know, any kind of big movement. Um, the scriptures are above them, not underneath them, which is definitely like the posture that certainly the medieval Catholic church took, but also even... Um, I would say those who deny the perspicuity of Scripture today, whether they be um, these large historical groups or whether they be uh, more upstart groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Um, essentially, those groups also deny the clarity of Scripture and also dissuade their people from reading the Bible um, because they're afraid of what they might discover, I think. Um, but their purpose in doing it was they said, Scriptures are clear and they're sufficient and we don't need anything else. 
But at the same time, understand, they weren't saying, so they were saying sola scriptura, but they weren't saying nuda scriptura, which means the scriptures alone are a source of theology. They are sufficient in and of themselves, but not the script, not the naked scriptures, right? So we still need the other gifts and offices. We still need to do theology and read the Bible, not just with the local church, not just with the global church, but also with the historical church. And to make sure that we're, you know, the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit's been leading the church, you know, that um, we're in step with what the Holy Spirit's been doing throughout history as well. Now, of course, there were people who got off track, but that's not uh, everybody. So, um, to that point, what does it mean for us today? Well, we live in a time, for example, with postmodernism, where everything is up for grabs, right? Where the, we seem to be, uh, again, at sea without a rudder as a culture now. And so I would say we're, we're in a time that's more akin to the time of Augustine, where um, there's these people out there who say, we have the secret knowledge, and the only basis for it is that we told you so. Well, Augustine said, no, 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 we have the scriptures to guide us. And so in a, in a culture like ours where, um, you know, things are being redefined in our culture or where, you know, certain things are being upheld as being true, because that's certainly what people are doing, right? They aren't saying that nothing is true. They're saying this is true. And if you ask them why, well, they say because it's self-evident. And we would say, well, wait a second. We have the scriptures as a canon, which means a ruler um, by which to measure by. And therefore, we can go to the scriptures and we can clearly see what they say. Another thing that's been happening in recent decades particularly is that things which the church has uh, understood the Bible to clearly say for 2,000 years are now being challenged. You know, And so, people are reinterpreting scripture and saying, well, everybody's always said that it means this, but now it actually means this. Well, we can go to that and say, this is clear. What it says in the scriptures is clear. People who read it can understand it. And here's uh, 2,000 years of Christian history to back that up, that this is how Christians have always said it's clear and what it means. So there's a lot at stake. I think it's pretty important, not only in the church, but also in culture and society. Well, that's great. I mean, I think, especially for people that are listening right now, I think all that to say that you can take your Bible and you can read it and understand it. And, and, and know it and that God will speak to you through it. Yeah, and to, to say to one, one final kind of counterpoint to that would just be to say um, some ways that this has been misused or abused would be that, um, that there have been people throughout history, particularly in North America, um, who have done this. And that is that they've said they've, they've misunderstood the point of the clarity of Scripture to say that I don't need the church, I don't need anybody, just me and my Bible. And that has literally led to um, the reason why there have been so many uh, strange groups that have come out of the United States, because this thinking, which was influenced by something else called Scottish common sense realism, which is something we can get into later. But it basically says... Um, I don't need anybody else to and and my truth is my truth, right? And so if I read the Bible and this is what it means to me, then you can't argue with me. And it doesn't matter what anybody else in history has said. This is what it means to me and that means that it's true for me. So like, you know, we hear people say this, you know, your truth type thing. Well, we don't believe that there's your truth and my truth and other truths. We believe there's one truth and we, our goal is to find that truth, right? And so, um, that's a way it's been misused throughout history is to say, um, 
if scripture's clear, then who needs who needs uh, other people's opinions? Who needs history? Who needs tradition? Who needs the church? And that's not at all what this is about. Um, you know, even Martin Luther in his German Bible, which he distributed to the German people, he included a commentary because his goal wasn't that everybody would just start interpreting the Bible for themselves, but it was that they would see the scriptures and understand them for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I think it can be misused. I think that some of those critiques are helpful in keeping us going in the right direction. So, hey, thank you for listening to this podcast. We're with you um, again soon here on Theology for the People. Go ahead and give us a rating and review over on iTunes or whatever podcast you listen to. A written review would be awesome, and um, we hope that you'll join us. You can also look at the uh text version of the blog, which includes different uh, content for sure, uh, over at nickkd.org. And we'll be with you next time. God bless. The theme of the 2021 CGN International Conference is The Way of Jesus. This past year has presented challenges that transcend society and culture, but it didn't change the mission of God to rescue His alienated creation via the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we press into the way of Jesus, we want to approach culture the way that Jesus did. Concepts like human dignity, justice, wisdom, and power are at the forefront of conversations in our culture like never before. Our are we understanding and engaging in this dialogue from a worldly definition of these ideas, or do we operate according to the model, message, and method that Jesus gave us in the Gospels? Joining us this year as we dialogue about the way of Jesus are Gavin Ortland, author and missiologist Alan Hirsch, John Jenkins, pastor of First Baptist Church in Glen Arden, Maryland, author and YouTube host Beckett Cook, missionary and Bible college director Pam Markey, and many more. Sessions will feature live dialogues and Q&As with the speakers and our interactive, in-person and online specialized training tracks focus on various aspects of ministry leadership, including the posture of the church in an age of hate, the way of Jesus in a sexually broken culture, spiritual health for spiritual leadership, women in the way of Jesus, and more. The CGN International Conference will be online and in-person at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa from June 28th through July 1st. Registration is open to pastors, church leaders, lay leaders, volunteers, men, women, anyone called to serve Christ and His kingdom. To register and for more information, visit our website at conference.calvarychapel.com. That's conference.calvarychapel.com. We hope to see you there.